My name is Jamie Piles. I joined Samaritan in December of 1996. We were homeschooling our kids and we were already thinking outside the world's box, if you will. And I saw a little tiny classified ad about this new kind of idea I'd never heard of before. My first reaction was, that's the kind of thing that we would do, isn't it? And so I finally called the number, talked to them, and the more I asked them questions, the more I liked their answers. Good evening, America. Happy birthday, America, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Welcome to the Water Break with Waterboy. This show will bring you all that you need to know about what happened with SCOTUS in June. Uh, a lot of good rulings actually happened. Um, there's about seven cases that I think are kind of according to m me about seven cases I think you really need to be paying attention to uh, regarding the rulings and what's happened. We're actually going to discuss hopefully most of those if not all those cases today uh, on water break. So um, and uh, so be sticking around for that. Also, we, we should have our app uh, updating literally any day. Uh, we're submitting it to iTunes, submitting uh, the Apple Apple Store. We're submitting it to Google and all that stuff. So the new app experience is going to be fantastic, especially for our club members. You're actually going to be able to have a real, um, you know, club member experience in the app and not having to go to the website. We're pretty excited about that. So, and of course, if you have not joined the club, please join the club. This is our way of remaining anti-fragile. This is our way of being able to grow and kind of continue to bring Christ-centered, you know, news and cultural commentary to. So please join the Join the club, support what we're doing, and uh, stick around for the show. You know, you know how it goes. You know how it works around here. Grab your best scotch, grab your best Dr. Pepper, and uh, look forward to our discussion later. But first, okay, you know, gotta gotta pay for the show here. Olive Tree Bible Software. I'm, if you guys haven't noticed, um, I've been starting or no or no, I've been starting to use Olive Tree Bible Software. Um, the CEO actually moved to our town um, uh, last summer. I think, you know, sometime last year and um, he's been very generous, been very helpful to us. And and so Olive Tree sponsors Cross Politic and Water Break and Knox Unplugged and everything we're doing here. So I encourage you to download and join a million, over a million people have actually downloaded this app. And and I have, of course, Logos Bible Software and I have Olive Tree um, Bible Software. And I really like the user face inter, 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 interface experience that the Olive Tree app brings to to my reading. So Download the when you download the app, you can download one of the many free Bibles, and you can actually start taking notes, highlighting verses, and bookmarking your favorite passages. You can read at your own pace or choose from a large selection of reading plans, including the Bible Reading Challenge, which is kind of our church kind of um, didn't invent it, but we put together the Bible Reading Challenge, uh, which you can find in the Olive Tree app. When you are ready to go deeper into your studies, Olive Tree is right there with a large selection of study Bibles, commentaries, and other helpful study resources available for purchase. So you can actually expand on, on your library there. An extensive bookstore allows you to build your digital library one book at a time, so you don't have to pay all that big upfront costs to get into the app. Olive Tree's syncing technology lets you pick up where you left off on your tablet, PC, or phone, which I use regularly. So get right to studying on another supported device. It's, it's fantastic. Now, here's the best part. You can start with the Olive Tree Essentials Bundle for free. So there's actually a bundle you can get for free, but you have to follow this website link. Go to www.olivetree.com forward slash FLF. That's Fight, Laugh, Feast forward slash FLF. And you'll get this really cool bundle for free. Download it today. Secondly, uh, before I get into introducing the lawyers who've joined me today and get into the, you know, cannonball or belly flop segment, I have a friend who started uh, Jesus King, Jesus is King and Lord.com. Jesus is King and Lord.com, all spelled out. And they actually are uh, making uh, flags and other merchandise that uh, say this. So, this is a really cool flag that he sent me to be able to, you know, kind of demonstrate to you guys on the show. And it's a, obviously a fantastic statement that you can hang on your house. Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, uh, and they got all sorts of merch there, but the flag was fantastic. I really, I really appreciate it. So go to Jesus is King and Lord.com support my brother and what he's doing there. Uh, a lot of fun merchandise there. All right, let's get into this cannonball or belly flop. 
it is it is no secret that elections matter. I'd also say don't let Republicans hang that over your head either because sometimes they can use that to kind of guilt trip you into voting for a candidate that we shouldn't vote for. But it but it still really is no secret that elections matter. And the 2016 election of President Trump in a lot of ways, despite some of the circus that surrounded him, was in some sense, I think, really a reprieve to our nation's uh, madness. The SCOTUS rulings this this last June, that that's 2022 with Roe v. Wade being overturned. And then this June, I think, is a reminder of this. There were at least seven cases, as I mentioned earlier, there are at least seven cases, cases that were decided by SCOTUS that will have a huge impact on the future of our legal system and and even the Biden administration kind of kind of hamstrung some of the things that the Biden administration was trying to do. Here's a list. We're actually going to go through these hopefully one one by one. Um, and I forgot my my paper. Um, Carter, could you go downstairs and on my desk you'll see papers with highlights on it. Thanks. Um, but here here's the list that we're going to go through uh, here in a minute with two lawyers and. And, and number one is the SFFA versus Harvard ruling. That was on affirmative action. We're going to go through that case. We're going to go through the 303 creative case. Um, that is kind of going off the cake baker, the flower shop, uh, and now this is the website case that made it uh, actually to the Supreme Court um, on basically First Amendment rights. Uh, we're going to go through the Biden versus Nebraska case. That's on student loan forgiveness. We're going to go through the Groff versus DeJoy uh, if I pronounce that right, uh, religious accommodations in the workplace. We're going to go through the Allen and Milligan legislative redistrict, redistricting case. Uh, and then uh, one that's kind of close to home for me was actually in Idaho. Uh, Sackett versus the EPA. Um, that's a really, I think, important case and really a good win for us here in Idaho. Thank you, Carter. And then lastly, we're going to go through the Missouri versus Biden case. Uh, that was with our, our friend, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya was involved in that case. I think the ruling, there's a, a, either a second rule or another ruling out of Louisiana or is a connected ruling to the Missouri case. I'll talk to my guys here in a minute about that. But the M- Missouri versus Biden case uh, was basically on um, uh, the DOJ um, uh, and a number of the agencies using Twitter and Facebook to silence free speech. Really excited about what happened in that case. Uh, some good stuff coming. But first, let me introduce, I got two lawyers uh, joining us. Uh, the first I want to introduce you to, because he's, he's new to the show, he's new to cross politics, he's new to um, water break, although apparently he, he informed me that he's actually been to our some of our conferences, so I want to welcome Steve Thornton. Steve Thornton is a, an attorney at law, practicing in both Arizona and Mississippi, and is a graduate of Mississippi College School of Law from Jackson, Mississippi, so he might know a thing or two about barbecue, too, just, just maybe, and he's actually... Uh, it sounds like now he spends a lot of his time with his grandkids in Huntsville, Alabama. So, Steve, thank you for joining Water Break. Great to have you on the show, man. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. And, of of course, no stranger to the show. Davis, uh, Davis Yunts, you know, Christian, husband, homeschool dad, former military officer, uh, and now he has a passion for justice uh, and he serves as a uh, he's on the front lines in a lot of ways for battling and defeating kind of a lot of the stuff that's been going on in the military, the forced vaccination stuff going on in the military and uh, some of the other cases surrounding uh, FBI uh, tyranny and so forth. So really glad to keep Davis Yunts uh, on on the show. Keep bringing him back frequently in and uh, welcome to the show, Davis. Thanks, brother. Glad to be here. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so I want to start with. Um, let me just maybe maybe I'll ask you, Davis. Just kind of give me a quick summary of the overall what happened in June of of the SCOTUS rulings. I think sometimes you know SCOTUS, uh, June happens and Pride Month's going on and there's just a lot of distractions. People are going on vacation and so forth. But actually, June is um, uh, a big month for SCOTUS rulings. Um, maybe just kind of why is June? Why does SCOTUS? Why does SCOTUS release all these rulings in June? Maybe just give us a little brief background on on June and and SCOTUS rulings. Yeah, so the modern Supreme Court has terms where they're they hear argument and then after those terms are over, once they're done with argument, then they have this period of writing and and they've for, fallen into a pattern with the modern court of releasing these decisions in June. 
So that's just the pattern. So every year, attorneys that practice in front of the Supreme Court know June, there's a couple of weeks in June that are going to be watershed moments. And really, if you think about it, after that, the Supreme Court goes on summer vacation. Like they kind of take a summer break. Um, and they're done. So they'll have periods where a bunch of oral arguments happen and then they'll spend months writing. And so that's why we've just, we've fallen into this sort of (laughs) pre-summer June and then they go on vacation, but that's where we're at. Okay. Okay. So let's, um, let's start off with the, the first ruling I want to, I want to go through is actually the Biden uh, versus Nebraska ruling. And this is the, the Supreme court basically invalidated president Joe Biden's student loan debt relief plan ruling that the program was unlawful exercise of presidential power because it had not been explicitly approved by Congress. So basically the Biden administration was making a financial decision that they had no authority to make a financial decision on. It was Congress. Congress makes the financial decisions and, um, and the Supreme court ruled against it. Um, uh, Stephen, what's, what's your take on that case? Why did the Supreme court kind of rule against the Biden administration? It's a it's a bit nuanced. Um, the administration has regulatory agencies, and a regulatory agency was set up by Congress, and that agency is empowered to administer the student loan program. And that agency argued under Biden's um, instruction, I suppose, that they had the power to modify the rules of that program such that they could forgive student debts at this huge level. You know, like four hundred thirty billion dollars worth. Okay. Uh, they used this word "modify," which was in the statute, and they, they said, "Okay, modify gives us authority to do this," and so we're marching forward with it. Well, they were challenged by Nebraska, um, and said, "No, you don't have the authority to to do that based on that language of the regulation." And the Supreme Court, thankfully, said that no, you don't have the power to do that. It's outside the bounds of your regulation. Now, when you say Congress has the authority. There's an underlying issue here, and I want to call your attention to and your listeners, and that is that uh, Congress has a long practice of delegating their legislative uh, power to non-elected bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. In this case, well, the delegation doctrine, the the United States Supreme Court has allowed uh, Congress to get away with this in large part. The Congress will write rules. And those rules have to be somewhat specific. And then the agency goes off and then makes the detailed rules and implements what Congress has written. Mm-hmm. What the court said in um, Biden versus Nebraska is that the way that the agency had interpreted the language was so broad, so huge, that that was something that Congress had to write into the legislation. Uh, it was not something you could just read into it between the lines. And this actually, what we'd call a split on party lines, um, three liberal justices versus, they voted, um, uh, I guess, against this, against, um, uh, you know, for President Joe Biden, his administration, and against, um, and for being able to forgive student loans. And then the six conservatives voted um, uh, against, I'm probably using the wrong language, Steve, you can please clarify um, how the ruling um, went out. But, but if I also recall, uh, Nancy Pelosi, was it two years ago, three years ago? Um, she actually said Biden didn't have the authority to forgive student loans. He had the authority to make adjustments, or maybe to use your terminology or what was in the bill's terminology. He had the authority um, to make modifications, uh, but he didn't have the authority to forgive student loans. So, I mean, the liberals, Nancy Pelosi, I mean, she knew this was wrong in the first place. Well, you no surprise that she would say that she, you know, was advised by a good lawyer, but it didn't stop Biden from wanting to um, uh, celebrate and sell and use it for his political advantage. Right. And I did give away more money, more money, federal money to people. Never mind the fact that, you know, the people who didn't go to college all paid their taxes yeah. and that money was then used to loan to students who did go to college. And then now the uh, government's going to say, OK, we're going to. Um, pay the banks or relieve those students of those loans at government expense. And that sounds like a great giveaway program. And you know that liberals love that. And so the three liberal justices voted in favor of an interpretation of the law that allowed Biden to get away with that. But the other justices said, no, that's too much. It's too much reading into the statute. Now, Davis, I'm always suspect on 
you know, and to me, the Democratic Party always does a good job running long-term plays. And I do believe, uh, you know, like what Steve was hinting at, I believe one of the short-term plays that Biden was running, whether he was going to be able to get this to pass Supreme Court muster or not, he was still trying to buy votes at some level. You know, hey, you know, Biden's for me. Biden's trying to forgive my debt. Biden, he's my he's my guy because he was going to forgive my debt. And he didn't, you know, even if it didn't pass SCOTUS, people, you know, especially college students still would look on that favorably like he's fighting for me. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there's some short-term play there that certainly Biden's trying to run. What do you think is the long-term play that's going on here with this with this uh, legislation that Biden initially pushed or this uh, executive order, I guess, that Biden initially pushed? You know, from my perspective, it's a pattern, right? It's It's been a pattern. We saw it in the Obama, Obama administration. We see it in the Biden administration. The pattern is to ignore federal law, right? And and mm. I know that sounds extreme, but it, it is really ignore federal law, ignore the intent of legislation and just push to expand the federal bureaucracy and the power of the executive and not really care, yeah. right? So campaign on doing things that are extreme under that and, and use, you know, the political power of the bureaucracy to try to push this forward. And then the only way to push back is is through the courts, you know, mm-hmm. and we saw that in in the vaccine cases. I mean, you had a, a Department of, of Justice attorney advocating for the Department of Defense saying, yeah, we understand what the law says, but we don't have to follow the law until someone sues us and forces us to follow it. That's literally what they said in open court. Wow. In federal court. And so that, you know, big picture, that's what I keep seeing in a lot of these cases is we see this. It's not just an expansion of the the federal bureaucracy. It's this idea that they're going to continue to push the limits to know that they're ignoring congressional intent and just keep leaning into this and forcing people to have to file federal lawsuits to push back. Mm. Um, By the way, Gabe, please, please, Steve. Yeah. That's the way the game has been played for, you know, longer than you and I have been alive. Mm-hmm. You, push, you push the limits, see what you can get away with. If you have liberal justices and a majority on the Supreme Court, you, they, they will justify that under some um, rational rationalization of yeah. language, either a statute or a prior case. Or sometimes they just like Roe versus Wade, they just make up the law on the fly. That's, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of an example right now, but I'm sure – Conservatives have done that same thing, where they, when they're in charge, they push the limits of the law. They they push the broader interpretation of what could be brought out of that law. As, as my children would tell you, I avoid those terms, conservative and liberal, mostly because you've seen people who are in the Republican Party uh, pushing to expand government power and government yeah. programs when it works to their advantage. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> whether you call that Republican or conservative, yeah. it's philosophically it's the same practice. Yeah, right. Right. The Uniparty. Uh, that's that's great. And so, I mean, basically, the ramification of this is um, four hundred and thirty million dollars of student debt is not forgiven. The students have to pay it off. Um, and and, the, you know, the the electricians and the and the and the oil field workers and the, the blue collar workers, they don't have to pay off debt for that. They did not create the, the people who bear the burden themselves have to pay off the debt. And student loan forgiveness doesn't doesn't work. Um, any is that the basic ramification? Because you know, Steve, you tend to, you tend to kind of bring a little more of a nuance into it. But is that the basic ramification? What happened there? Well, that's a fine description. Um, as far as a nuance of what the agency authority, the agency still has authority to forgive some debts uh, if they find a person who borrowed it in bankruptcy or in other sort of dire situations. They can put, they can petition on an individual basis. Okay, okay, I see. So, so student debt can still be forgiven if it if a if a student's just been sloppy enough with their own finances. Basically. Hmm. Okay. Let's let's move on to three hundred three creative. Uh, now, this decision this this came out of Colorado again, and of course, Colorado's been kind of leading the charge of trying to get Christians to do stuff against their conscience when it comes to their own business practices. So yeah, Jack Phelps, you know, bake me a cake or we'll sue you. And then now you have 303 Creative also coming out of Colorado. And then of course, closer to my neck of the woods, you had in the state of Washington, the flower situation. I forget the lady's name. Um, uh, 
and uh, but now we have 303 creative it, it made it to the supreme court jack phelps made it to the supreme court but i think if I, the, the uh to use the word i hate so much nuance the nuance was there was still more needed um to push this the problem that conservatives were facing and so the 303 creative case made it to the supreme court and the court again on if you want to call it party lines whatever you want to call it uh, the court ruled in favor of an evangelical Christian website designer from Colorado who refused to work on same-sex weddings, uh, so build same-sex wedding websites, saying that she had the free speech and the right under the Constitution's First Amendment not to endorse messages she disagrees with. And the Supreme Court ruled in her favor, again, six justices versus three liberals. Um, uh, let's start again with you, Steve. Steve, um, maybe maybe kind of help me flesh out what actually happened here. I understand there's always kind of a um, usually the SCOTUS is always trying to get a specific reason why they ruled in in or or against the, the situation that happened. Well, what happened in the 303 creative case? Well, let's start with a framework that goes way back to um, civil rights litigation. It says you can't discriminate on the basis of race or religion. Uh, we'll leave that one. Uh, there's a longer list, but I'll just truncate that. Um, along the years, uh, the government has expanded that list, and you have lived through an expansion of that list to now add sexual orientation. You can't discriminate against someone on the basis of sexual orientation. Well, that has been long applied to businesses going back to the 1870s. Um, so you got this um, legislation in Colorado that says you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. So along comes the, you know, the cake baker. He says, I can't bake a cake that um, you know promotes uh, sodomy, homosexuality. He uh, goes up to the Supreme Court, and I'll just jump over that one for now. But So Colorado has a statute that our website designer is faced with that if she refuses to uh, design a website for somebody who says, I want a website designed that promotes homosexuality, then Colorado will say, you must do that. Otherwise, we'll find you in, uh, in violation of the law for discriminating against somebody for a sexual orientation. So that's what she's facing. Uh, this was a uh, action where she hadn't yet started her website business, but she had filed for an injunction declaratory action saying, if I do start my business, then um, I fear that I will be you know, penalized by the state of Colorado. Okay. So that's, that's what they took up to the Supreme Court. The argument is, and which Supreme Court adopted, is that she was not just being forced to do business because both Colorado and um, uh, uh, Lori uh, agreed that she would design websites for homosexuals as, as long as it was just like any other website. It didn't promote uh, things that she that violated her uh, strongly held religious beliefs. Uh, her website was designed to do um, weddings and to have a um, particular page for your wedding. And it was all about the, the uniqueness of your wedding. Um, and so the Supreme Court said that was expressive conduct. So it was the First Amendment that they used to say the uh, state cannot use the laws against discrimination to force someone to speak under the First Amendment. And, and that's your core ruling, is that um, Lori Smith said, um, or, or the st Supreme Court said the state of Colorado couldn't use the uh, non-discriminatory discrimination statute to force her to make speech or to make expressions or to say things yeah that the first amendment protects and she's not, can't be required to do that. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. You said the, basically the first, the discrimination laws that we have on the books cannot conflict with the first amendment rights of free speech that we have in the constitution. Well, that's the basic ruling is that a state can't use or the federal government, I suppose, can't use not a non-discrimination statute to force someone to say something. Interesting. Okay. Davis, what do you like? I'm, I'm starting to get worried that the left and right divide is so hardened um, because you in this especially this case makes me really worried because you've got three um supreme court justices uh that was sotomayor uh brown jackson and kagan they all voted basically to they, they would they would vote to force three or three creative to do a a website that violates their conscience and violates their free speech rights. Um, that that's, I mean, we're so close to like some sort of, you know, Orwellian totalitarianism, uh, and you're seeing it at the justice level. What's your take on that? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a huge takeaway that I have from this case is just the d- dividing line between the two, you know, the two sides, even among Supreme Court justices. And I look at it this way. I mean, to really understand what was going on here, you have to understand what the state of Colorado was doing. I mean, this is a state that's passing a law that says if you do it for profit, we can force you to do creative speech, anything artistic. I mean, to the level of if you're a painter and you get paid, you allow the public to commission paintings, they could dictate using any law, they could dictate the kind of painting you could paint. I mean, think about that, right? So to us, as we look at it that way, we sort of take it on the flip side. It seems extreme to think anyone could do that. Any state could do that or force that. And I think that's critical. But I mean, you see the justices essentially looking at this case and not even agreeing on the facts, right? Like just even look like, I don't even understand what facts you're looking at to understand (laughs) this, but it's that perspective. And to me, honestly, it's sort of a Marxist perspective, right? It's like there's, there's Marxism that says, well, we, the state have decided promoting this, and promoting these anti-discrimination laws is for the greater good of all society. So individual rights, individual interests, individual beliefs have to be subservient to the greater good, to the state. Mm-hmm. And that really is the level of totalitarianism. So I, I see a lot of this is, is feeling like neo-Marxism just under a different cloak, but it really is about authoritarian power versus the constitution in this case. When you read through um, the ruling uh, you just mentioned that I don't even know what we aren't even reading the same facts. They're, they're, they disagree on the, on the basic facts. Like, can you give me a couple specifics of what you were getting at in that comment? Yeah, I mean, I you know the the justices, the the, the so called liberal justices in the dissent really focused on you know trying to turn this into like a a civil rights issue, right? Like this goes back to the civil rights era, and all of a sudden people are not going to be able to to participate in commerce if they're a part of a particular group. Mm-hmm. And as Steve mentioned, those aren't the facts of this case. This is this is a woman who who designs websites. She wanted to move potentially into the business of designing uh, wedding registry websites and websites for weddings. And before even doing that, she said, hey, will I be forced to create artistic things that I that disagree with my faith that are inconsistent with the speech I want to do. So that's where I say that you have justices that are looking at this and saying there's a segment of society that will not even be able to participate in in commerce unless we unless we protect this versus so the other justices are saying how can we possibly force anyone an author, a painter, a website designer to engage in speech that's morally offensive to them. Of course, we can't do that. that that's what I mean. And you're yeah. right. That's a huge dividing line. I mean, it's just a, a different perspective in even approaching the facts of the case. Uh, Steve, does it, it's always interesting to me, and, and this is um, that all these cases, you know, the flower uh, lady in Washington, the photographer in New Mexico, the cake baker in Colorado and now the website, all these um, uh, cases are coming from the left, pushing largely Christian, I think all of them are Christians, coming from the left and making Christians do something that violate their conscience. Um, It's never coming from, you know, the right or coming from, you know, um, you know, some racist guy walking in with blackface on in a, in a, in a cake baking shop of a, of a black person and asking the black person to put a noose on the cake or something like that. Like it, like it's, it's coming from the left. The left is, is pushing the issue. The left is trying to force the right, particularly Christians, um, on their kind of new morality that they're trying to push. What, what's your take on that? Well, I, th- I think it's consistent with by Genesis one where, the devil takes something God has created and spins it a little bit and turns it into wickedness. Um, the the left, as you call them, uh, they recognize what was done in 1860s and 70s and said, we can use that those laws to say you can't discriminate on the basis of religion, uh, race, and we can force our country into accepting this behavior uh, under the power of the sword, under the power of the law says you must, if you have a business, you cannot uh, re- refuse to serve or discriminate. You can't discriminate on the basis of the fact that you have a strongly held religious belief that says that's, that conduct is evil. 
Uh, thankfully, the founders gave us the First Amendment under which the uh, current justices, a majority, uh, found that uh, the states were prohibited from forcing someone to um, engage in a business activity uh, that's expressed the First Amendment. But take a, a painter, not a painter of murals, but a painter of houses. Mm-hmm. And if that painter didn't want to uh, paint a house for someone for some something that violated his convictions, he would be in a bit of a jam because he, like, uh, like uh, um, hotels in the 1960s, restaurants, uh, you have a restaurant and you want to serve. Let's say you had a Chinese, you're a China, Chinese person and you want to have a Chinese restaurant and you want to be authentically Chinese. So you hire a Chinese cook and you want to hire Chinese waitresses. Uh, someone who wanted to, uh, your competition shut you down, comes in and says, uh, they send someone over to apply who's a Hispanic or a Irishman and says, I want to apply to work for this restaurant. You say, I want this to be uniquely Chinese. They say, no, no, that's discrimination on the basis of race. Mm-hmm. Um, that person, that person is stuck without the First Amendment. So my uh, my take, is, my take is that it is those who want to shove wickedness down your throat who are taking the construct that they you know they find and they're manipulating. You, you said earlier that liberals play a long game. This is the long game play. Yeah. Wow. All right. Let's let's move on uh, to. Uh, the students for fair admissions versus University of North Carolina and Harvard College. Um, this one's funny to me on a number of level levels, but uh, um, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action programs at the University of North Carolina and Harvard University, dealing a blow to race-based admission standards, basically, but leaving some room to consider an individual's application background and admissions. Um Jackson Brown actually recused herself from students for fair admissions at Harvard College because she she graduated from Harvard College, um, I assume. Uh, what, uh, uh, Steve? Again, let's start with you. What's your take on this uh, case? Well, let's start with a bit of a funny part, and that is that after the case came out, there's been a lawsuit that's against Harvard because this case revealed that Harvard has a legacy admission plan where if you're an alum or you're somehow a legacy connected to Harvard, your, um, your, your student's application gets a little tip in your favor. Yeah. Well, it was, that, it was that tip in the application process that Harvard said, if, if they look at your application and they look at your race and they want to see uh, if they want to have more of a particular racial group in, the, in their um, student population, they'll give a tip to that person and they'll get like bonus points in terms of getting into Harvard. Uh, that process by Harvard, which is a similar process employed by the University of North Carolina, the court, uh, the majority said that just violates the um, equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment, but also it violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Now, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1965, uh, Title VI, gets us to Harvard, which is a private college. It's not a government actor. Under the equal rights um, uh, clause of the 14th Amendment, or equal protection, I should say, um, you have to be a state actor. But under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, if you accept federal money and use it in a program, then you have to comply with language of that program. Right. The, the act. And the act says you can't discriminate on the basis of race. So here we have Harvard taking federal money and using that federal money to give favored, favored treatment to people of particular races. Right. Also, the funny as- another funny aspect of the case was both Harvard and University of North Carolina were using a four-tier racial grouping. You had whites, blacks, Hispanics and Asian, and the uh, the justices pointed out uh, that um, so you have um, the Chinese and the Japanese uh, Asians and the Southeast Asians and the uh, Indians uh, Asians all in the same grouping. Uh, <laughs> so you know when a black gets a tip uh, in their favor, then that discriminates against all these groups. So their their classification system uh, promoted negative stereotypes, which the justices observed. Wow. And said, "We, you know, this this violates Title Six of the Civil Rights Act and and the uh, Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment." Interesting observation, however, is that this doesn't prevent all uh, affirmative action, as you mentioned, uh, drawing, I guess, from the opinion, reading the opinion, uh, particularly uh, Justice Thomas said, if you have people who are um, applying to Harvard, applying to North Carolina, or other college. And they can take into consideration their their you know if they're raised in the inner city, if they're raised by a single mom, if they had you know particular difficulties, they can take all that into consideration and give that person favorable treatment. Um, 
and even consider race in that process. But the program that was put in front of the justices, they said, violated violated the law and they shook it down. You know, uh, Davis, I mean, this really the heart of this is like the liberal view that um, they want to put a system in place to create equal, equal um, outcomes versus kind of a, a playing field that creates, you know, a, a, a fair playing field, you know, a fair playing field of, you know, equal opportunities versus equal outcomes. I don't even like the terminology equal opportunities, um, but I understand what it's trying to communicate. Um, uh, but that's what this admission process is doing. Hey, we're going to, we're going to score everything. We're going to tip the balance in a score based on your race, sex, so forth to be able to um, uh, create equal, equal uh, outcomes versus really coming at it from an equal opportunities approach. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and you see an interesting decision from the Supreme Court where the justices are talking about, you know, colorblind admission processes and other things. But I think that the big picture takeaway, again, we have to look at at societal trends and everything else. I was reading an article this morning about uh, University of California at Davis, UC Davis's medical school. They said, this is fine. What we're going to do is we're going to use an adversity score, right? So we're going to say, have the students write in, they write an essay that talks about their life and background, and they're going to use an adversity score. So they're going to say, if you've gone through difficult things in life, we're going to give that tip, if you will, in the admissions process. And, and again, I think we have to look big picture and say, where where's the biblical morality in this? Where's the mooring? Where's Why are we getting into unequal weights and measures in these things? Why aren't we looking at, at capacity, hard work, and all of that? And I understand some of it, but my fear is this is just a continuation of, again, neo-Marxist ways of trying to alter society, alter the structure of society and push these equal outcomes where there is no incentive for for working hard and achieving in order to, to get there. And of course, then it has this odd impact of creating stigmas that go along with it. You know, you can look out on liberal media and see, you know, what, oh yeah, the affirmative action justice is the one writing the opinion about the affirmative action case as if, you know, Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas doesn't have the intellect to be where he is unless he was African-American, you know, so it's like they're they're saying just, you know, racist things about him as he's writing this opinion. Um, So there's, I think a lot we can take away, but big picture, I think we just have to be, you know, we have to be thankful. I think this is a good decision. I think it makes sense, but we have to be aware once again, there's a huge dividing line um, on the Supreme Court over these issues and how we approach this. But it is interesting to, that you have people saying being colorblind is is not enough. That's not good enough. We have to do something else um, yeah. to get the outcome we want, to get the sort of central organization, you know, central planned outcome that we want in higher education. And well, that's disturbing. Yeah. And, it, and it, I mean, it's it's not surprising that the three justices, the liberal justices, are all on the Supreme Court because the Democrats keep talking about this equal opportunity Supreme Court justice um, appointee process. Like we need a black person on SCOTUS. We need a woman on SCOTUS. We need so all the you know Kagan, Sotomayor, and and Jackson were all appointed with this kind of equal opportunity worldview in mind. So they're all there because of some sort of um, affirmative action. And so of course they're going to rule in favor. Of, of this. Let's move on to uh, Groff versus uh, DeJoy. Uh, so Groff versus DeJoy. Uh, Davis, I want to start here with you. It, it ruled, the Supreme Court ruled and made it easier for employees to seek religious accommodations in a case involving a lawsuit brought by an evangelical Christian mail carrier who asked not to work on Sundays. I remember back in the 90s when I got a job, I remember saying I can't work on Sundays. And that was like no problem. This is that I worked at Best Buy and I worked at some other places. And I just stayed up front. I can't work on Sundays. They're like, great. And life went on. Um uh but now this kind of ruling, it surprised me that we're in a situation now where this kind of ruling, uh this kind of case ended up at the Supreme Court. Um so Davis, what's your take on the Groff versus DJoy ruling? So I have I have two 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 different takes on okay. it um, that are very interesting. So the first is it really is a clarification 
of the legal standard that employers are going to be subjected to when it comes to religious accommodation. So mm-hmm. they didn't quite overturn precedent, but really the best way to understand it is the court would previously would use what they would call a de minimis standard. So basically an employer could deny a religious accommodation if they could say uh, it makes it harder, it could impact profit, very, very minimal showing from them, and they could deny a religious accommodation. This says a, I, I would put to put it simply, I would say previously under the previous case law, an employer could. Now an employer is going to have to go to their attorney and say, is it a good idea that we deny this religious accommodation? And can we really justify it? Can we say, yes, this has a significant impact? A, a measurable impact on our business. So from that perspective, I mean, I look back at all the vaccine cases that we've been battling, right? So the past three years of battling these vaccine cases, all the people I fought for to keep their jobs, some people that didn't keep their jobs and employers were denying their religious accommodation for no reason, without a good reason. We're arguing, no, look, the law requires some rational basis for you to deny this religious accommodation. We should do these things. So now I would just, I would put it this way. Employers are going to look at this and say, if we can, we should grant religious accommodations. Um, so from that perspective, even looking at, you know, the personal involvement I've had in the vaccine cases, it's helpful. I think it's a good clarification of the language. However, I also have this, this pit in my stomach that it is the federal government telling employers what they have to do. And, and we may see sort of a long-term adverse consequence. So my, my libertarian leanings come out and I say, you're a private business. I, I have concerns about that from a logical standpoint, from clarifying precedent. I think it's helpful. I think for Christians and others who are asking for a reasonable religious accommodation, there's going to be clarity. I hope from this it will be better. And I do think employers are going to say, okay, we're really being told under the law, we should grant a religious accommodation. We should be reasonable if we can be. Um, if we can't, we're going to have to justify it. We're going to have a rational basis to doing it. So that's the good news. The bad news is from my perspective, I'm just, every time I see the government coming after yeah. and interfering in private business, um, I get nervous. So did it, does it really go that far? Because it, maybe I misunderstood some of this, but like, isn't was he part of the U.S. Did he work for the United States Postal Service, or did he work for a private mail carrier? So it it, it or it doesn't the matter. Way the, it doesn't matter. The yeah. way the decision is written, it's written. My understanding of the decision is written to apply federal workplace and to other employers as well. And I do think there'll be more litigation to clarify how far it's supposed to go. But it does. That's the way this case was written. That's the analysis that's coming out of it is it's going to apply more than just to the federal government. It doesn't seem to be that limited. It's interesting that uh, uh, Katani Jackson Brown or Katani Brown Jackson, um, she ruled with the conservative justices on this. Right. And so that was the compromise, right? So this was an, uh, this was a, a super majority, if you will, decision from the Supreme Court, but that was so they wouldn't overturn previous precedent. They just modified previous precedent. So it's interesting. This was a compromise decision, but that, that then all of the justices could sign on to. So that's interesting as far as you look at the I process see. of the court. Yeah. Uh, Steve, do you have any do you have any take on the new uh, the nuance I introduced uh, to Davis about you know this being a ruling maybe particularly for uh, the federal government USPS or, or um, United States Postal Service or do you think like Davis is saying do you think this is a broader ruling on all uh, even private businesses? I am confident it's a broader ruling because um, Mr. Uh, Groff sued under the um, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And that applies to all those employees. Now, now you have to be engaged in interstate commerce. And the United States Supreme Court has said almost everything affects interstate commerce. And so you have to be, a, you know, you have to qualify as an employer that's subject to Title VII. But that's pretty easy to meet. Uh, so if you're an employer and, and most uh, employment lawyers are going to be counseling their clients to comply with this, even if they're a little bit smaller, they don't quite uh, meet, the quali- meet the qualifications of employer under Title VII. So I think it's going to apply to um, all kinds of employers. And I might add that in the context in which we find ourselves, the justices gave us something wonderful. And as Davis pointed out in his vaccine cases, if you're working for an employer and they might accommodate you because you're a Seventh-day Adventist, which there's an old Supreme Court case that said you must, um, here you can just be an ordinary Christian and you want to take off on Sunday, 
or you can say I want accommodations for um, deeply held religious beliefs. I don't want to take this vaccine. Uh, the new standard that the court adopted in this case was an undue hardship. Uh, before the old standard on an old case came out of a regulation, not a statute, that said a de minimis standard. If the employer had to do anything more than a de minimis uh, burden, he does not have to accommodate this person's uh, request. But now, under the uh, language of the statute, if you have an undue hardship, the employer has to prove an undue hardship or otherwise he has to um, accommodate. Now, along with Davis, I say here again, we have the federal government telling employers who they must or how they must run their business. Um, this is a difficulty that American jurisprudence yeah. faces, and we should all be concerned. But that's a bigger picture than what we're facing here. And, and we can be glad that the justices gave us this uh, gave us this uh, ruling on, on this accommodation. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And just to clarify, uh, all nine justices decided in favor of Groff on this one. Um, I just mentioned Jackson Brown joined the conservatives, but it was actually all the justices uh, joined on this on this ruling. Um, let's move on to um, Allen versus Milligan. Now, Allen versus Milligan, there's another case, Moore versus Harper. I think that was related to this a little bit. But the... Um, uh, Allen versus Milligan, the Supreme Court rejected a Republican-led effort to further weaken the Landmark Voting Rights Act by making it harder to draw minority major majority districts in response to claims that lines were drawn to maximize the power of the white vote. Um, this case was decided five to four, um, which was interesting. Um, uh, Steve, let's start here with you on this case. Well, if you like, let me go to Moore versus Harper just to say that it's a a, high, a legal technical thing where the United States Constitution gives the state legislatures the power to make rules uh, for redistricting. Uh -huh. uh, in, in North Carolina, the state legislature was sued by someone inside the state. It went to the Supreme Court and the legislature went to the United States Supreme Court and says, we don't have to listen to the courts in our state. We have already under the Constitution. And the United States Supreme Court says, yes, you do have to listen to the courts in your state. And that, that's, 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 that's legally technical for, for most folks. And so it doesn't say much to us um, in terms of our um, cultural issues. Okay. So that was the Moore versus Harper case. Right. Where, where the Supreme Court is saying, hey, regarding redistricting, you have to listen to your um, court. Um, regarding how they're judging the interpretation of the legislators' laws. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. And then the Allen versus Milligan was the actual... Uh, okay, so how does that connect to the Allen versus Milligan now? Well, they're both redistricting cases. Okay. Um, Allen versus Milligan, the um, state legislature of Alabama, uh, because of a change in population, is drawing a new district, and um, they drew a district based on general uh, historical pattern trends and trying to preserve, you know, people of like, let's say, like Mobile, Alabama, down in the south, there's a, a district there that was kept in place by the legislature. Um, they, they were sued, um, obviously, for um, violating the Civil Rights Act. And so goes up to the United States Supreme Court and Supreme Court says, no, um, like the, the district court had ruled that, well, I'm not, I mean, not I'm not sure I remember that precisely. So I'll just say this. United States Supreme Court said the Civil Rights Act applies and you cannot redistrict in such a way that dilutes the um, dilutes the voting power of a minority. Okay. And that's essentially a ruling. I mean, there are a lot of folks who thought that this this court was going to say that was not you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that. You'd have to take that into consideration because we need to be colorblind. And it's very unfortunate in that ruling that we didn't have more coming out of the justices about the importance of negative stereotyping like we did in the affirmative action case. Um, yeah, a lot about negative stereotyping and the damage of that done and the inaccuracy of that negative stereotyping or stereotyping in general. Uh, we have this, uh, language in Allen versus Milligan that talks about minorities. There's no definition of minorities. There's no definition of minorities. Well, you know, what kind of minority? You know, uh, it's, so it's, it's quite ambiguous, but the takeaway is that uh, the uh, Civil Rights Act that applies to redistricting is going to stay in place uh, by this court, uh, and Alabama House has to now go back and redraw the lines to accommodate minority voting voting groups' locks. Hmm. 
it, um, I guess what I don't understand about this case is that it seems to me historically legislators could basically redraw their lines however they wanted and that the federal government and SCOTUS in this case can't really tell the states what to do and how they draw their lines and now they're basically in effect telling them at some level how to draw their lines. Well, we'd have to go back, <laughs> go back, have to go back a ways. Um, 1960s, um, the um, legislature passed Voting Rights Act and says if you are a state, and they didn't say if you were a southern state who succeeded in 1860, but if you were a state with a historical tradition of discriminating against minorities, then not only does your redistricting have to be approved uh, by the Supreme Court, it has to be approved by the Department of Justice. Oof. And we, we've come a long way. So in times past, wow. let's go Mississippi, for example, when the legislature would um, redraw lines for um, legislative districting, they'd send it up to the Department of Justice to make sure the Department of Justice didn't think it violated the Civil Rights Act, and then send it back down to the legislature, and then they could vote to adopt it and approve it. I mean, it, uh, it is, you know, the federal government oversees with some microscope, uh, or at least some degree of microscopic examination, yeah redistricting that goes on in the states uh, that have this historical uh, the history of uh, discriminating against minorities so this is uh this is now since then the uh, supreme court has loosened up a little bit on uh, department of justice approval and that remains a little bit Im- ambiguous in my mind right. uh, uh, um, although there's some argument that that the state does have to get department of justice approval and some argument that they don't and I haven't um, studied that in detail to see where we are today, but that's the history coming back. So here, Alabama finds itself in the same position. And when the people who didn't like the redistricting sued in federal court in North, Northern District of Alabama, it then went up to the Supreme Court who then decided that, yes, you got to uh, accommodate, let's say, let's say accommodate the minorities so that you, when you draw a district, you don't make it so that they can't elect a person of their, of their, of their in- inkling. Uh, and what it really does is says that some group wants political power and it's, it's some amorphous undefined group, but they want political power. And by using this tool, the, they can force the legislature of Alabama to draw a line that accommodates. Right. And, and we might, we might say it's the Dem- Democrats, although that, that too is a, a bit amorphous, but right. um, we could, as a, we could, as a generalization, argue that the Democrats want political power and they want the, the power to um, elect a congressman from Alabama. Or two. Now they can elect two based on this decision. Right. Very, um, very interesting. Um, I want to move to, uh, for sake of time here, move to Sackett versus EPA. And the reason I want to bring this up is because, uh, uh, and Davis, I'll bring you in on this. Uh, Sackett versus EPA actually originated out of Idaho. And it's been an ongoing case for, I think, like 12 to 15 years out of Idaho, up in northern Idaho. And our previous attorney general was Sackagello. And wouldn't do anything about it. And then we elected Raul Labrador. And within a year of his election, he was able to um, help Sackett versus Idaho all the way up to the um, uh, Supreme Court. Um, uh, In Sackett versus Idaho, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in favor of Idaho landowners, but was split five to four on significantly reducing federal authority to regulate wetlands. So... I think what so as I understood it, what happened was is, uh, the Sackett family wanted to um, develop some of their land, and apparently there was some sort of, or supposedly, by federal government standards, there's some sort of wetlands on the property, and the federal government wouldn't let them uh, develop it. The federal government was regulating their own land, um, and and so uh, maybe Davis, you can clarify a little bit on here. But the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in favor of the Idaho landowners, which is interesting. Interesting, but they're split on. Um, reducing federal authorities uh, uh, authority over regulative wetlands. Uh, Davis, what do you, can you round some of this out, clarify some of what's going on here? Yeah, essentially you're looking at a family who had property, they were going to build a house and there was a ditch. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. literally, I mean, those yeah. are the facts of this case. There's a ditch yeah. that sometimes had rainwater runoff that would run into a river. And so this is a situation where the EPA was, imposing just draconian fines. I can't even remember what the amount of fines was, but they were saying every day you didn't take steps to reverse what you'd already done on this because of this ditch 
that runs off, um, they were going to come after them. So that's why you see sort of the different things. One is this, all the Supreme Court justice is saying, look, the EPA is going way too far in this case, which is crazy. Some of the justice, which is crazy, (laughs) which is crazy, but encouraging. Yeah. And then you have the other justices talking about, okay, what are we going to do with the clean water act and how are we going to really clearly set precedent on the definitions of what is a wetland? And again, this goes back to other cases where we see the bureaucracy going too far and getting out of control. So it's a question of how far can the EPA go in defining what a wetland is under the Clean Water Act and and how is it being used? And so that's where you see these different applications across the country of the Clean Water Act. What is a wetland? What is not a wetland? What qualifies? What doesn't? So that clarity is only somewhat resolved by this, but this was a really egregious case. case and you're going to see it more looking at, is it a permanent fixture of the land, right? So if you're a landowner and there's permanent wetlands where there's almost always water flowing or there's water there, this isn't going to help you necessarily, but it is a better defining of it. And it certainly helps in a case of just crazy federal bureaucracy punishing this individual family over a ditch. Factually, this was a ditch where sometimes there's water runoff. <laughs> um, it's amazing that, so you mentioned the Clean Water Act. Uh, and so I, I, I'm, I'm unsure on the five to four part of this decision here. Was it five conservatives limiting the EPA? Uh, what what happened there with that five to four ruling? Right, the five to four was more looking at at saying, look, under the the legislative intent of the Clean Water Act, the statute itself, the EPA is going too far. You're too far broad, broadening right. the definition of what is a wetland. So they're looking at they use the language like continuous water flow, direct connectivity to uh, you know a waterway things like that so there's a little better clarification than we've seen in the past under how far they're going to go in defining what is a wetland it's narrowing that definition closer to the original intent of the clean water act which the epa had just been pushing you know year after year after year to expand that definition wow that's crazy steve any thoughts on that case before i want to i want to move on to the last uh case missouri versus biden but any thoughts on on that wetland case uh, only a couple. One is it was $4,000 a day was a penalty that they're going to impose. For like 15 yeah. years or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other is I think that people who want to develop land will be benefited from the language of this case. As the Supreme Court said, there has to be some connection to, and it goes into what is a waterway of the United States? Clean Water Act regulates waterways of the United States. I mean, I, I worked in Arizona, right? And so I know that some of the dry ditches in Arizona, uh, the EPA wants to consider waters of the United States. And they do. <laughs> they do. So wow. I, think, I think the language of the of the case will help, as, as David said, help clarify or help give ammunition to people who want to demand some clarity whenever they're, whenever they want to build a house and fill in a ditch in their backyard. Wow. Very interesting. Thank you. All right, let's get to the last one. This is, um, I would say uh, a huge victory and has massive ramifications on on particularly how the Biden administration is is handled um, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff uh, in in relationship, particularly to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and some of the doctors who were outspoken during the pandemic. Um, and then uh, uh, I'm gonna start here with you, Davis. Uh, and then I think there was a ruling out of Louisiana, or was it the same ruling that happened? Um, uh, but the Missouri versus Biden case, why don't you start off kind of explaining a little of the history here and, and then what was the ruling? Yeah. So what, what we have right now is an, an injunction, right? So this is a federal okay. judge issuing an injunction, preventing the Biden administration from continuing a practice of putting political, financial, and other pressure on private social media outlets to censor speech. Right. I mean, it mm-hmm. seems crazy that we're even talking about this, but that's procedurally yeah. where we're at. So there are a couple of different federal cases that are going to, I think, all going to come together and be and be impacted by this injunction. So you have a Louisiana case, you have the Missouri case, Dr. Dr. Bhattacharya is involved in this. So it's it's wide ranging, but there's different people who are aggrieved by their sense censorship, right? Impingement of free speech. So you have a a Trump appointed um, federal district court judge releasing this decision on the 4th of July, uh-huh. quoting the founding fathers in the introductory remarks wow. to the ruling. 
I, I mean, it's 155 pages. I would encourage, and I don't normally do this. I would encourage everyone in the United States that cares about free speech, that cares about government overreach, get this opinion and read it. It reads like a spy novel. I mean, this is literally wow. insane. The pressure that the Biden administration was putting on private companies, WhatsApp, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. The 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 plaintiffs in this case, you know, Dr. Bhattacharya's lawyers and others have emails, text messages, proof of the pressure that the Biden administration was putting on these individuals. And it went past simply, you know, vaccine misinformation. It goes into the the laptop, the Hunter Biden laptop, suppressing mm. this information for political purposes and, and colluding with and putting incredible pressure on these private companies to do these things. So if nothing else, the facts of this case should be shocking. And, and we have in the back of our minds, right? As American citizens, if we're paying attention to what's going on, we know that the Biden administration has been doing these things. We know right. government has been working with these media outlets. The FBI, CIA have been doing this. this isn't new. It isn't unique. But what's shocking is just the level that they went to here. That's why I say read it. I mean, it's 155 pages, but read it. You will be shocked by what you see, the proof in these emails of what's been done. So this is not over. This is like the vaccine mandate cases where there's an injunction. So all this is an injunction that says to the Biden administration, stop what you're doing, stop the censorship, stop the coercion. And then it'll still have to go forward to trial. So there will be an appeal. So procedurally, look for there to be an appeal yeah. to the federal circuit court who they will look at this case. I I am hoping that they will look at it favorably because of the facts that are here. But again, for now, because it's at the injunctive stage, the most important thing we see is this is a public you know, revealing of the facts of this case and the level of censorship and coercion that was happening. Mm -hmm. Just taking notes, thinking here. Um, Steve, um, this uh, – uh, so am I getting some things mixed up here? Because this is Mississippi uh, versus Biden. Um, but also I, I thought there's another ruling that happened out of Louisiana recently that was kind of related to this case. Am I, am, I, or am I wrong or I'm confusing things here? It's Missouri. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's Missouri versus Biden. Yeah, Missouri. Excuse me, not Mississippi. Missouri. Oh. Missouri versus Biden. But there's also, wasn't there like a, a related case, that a ruling that happened out of Louisiana? It might have been a district court ruling or something? Yes, there was. Although the details of that, I think um, uh, Davis is better better prepared to tell you about. But okay. they're, they're connected. I, I did, you have to ask Davis, did that ruling, that injunction cover both Louisiana and Missouri? Okay. But I think most importantly, it applied to the Biden administration. Yeah. But let's ask Davis. Uh, Davis, um, will you clarify for me what's going on with the Louisiana stuff versus what happened in Missouri? Yeah, my my understanding is the in, injunction impacts both cases essentially, right? Okay. So, so I I can't you can't say that they're joined, but this happened with the vaccine cases as well, right? Okay. So it was like one piece at a time of this. But what the Missouri v. Biden case did is it applied it to the Biden administration. So for the the Biden administration has to abide by this okay. injunction, I see. and it impacts all cases because they have to abide by it until they appeal. And, you know, an appellate court does something with this. And again, this is the kind of injunction that we could see move up to the Supreme Court quickly. Right. Um, it is. I, I mean, it just depends on how, you know, the Department of Justice wants to approach this and, right. and how they decide to handle it from a legal strategy standpoint. But it's right. huge. I mean, politically, I think it's hugely embarrassing for the federal mm. government, for mm. the Biden administration. So that's yeah. what's going to be interesting about this as we look forward and, and you know, yeah. see what they do with the appeal. At looking at the injunction, looking at the logic of the judge on this case, it looks very, very sound, right? So there was some, you know, definitely some political grandstanding by this judge when you think about releasing it on the 4th of July. Yeah. However, yeah. the underlying the underlying legal analysis, you know, the idea that the federal government can impact free speech um, – I think it's solid because uh, it's just such a clear connection to what the federal government was doing. And also to clarify, also, this wasn't a SCOTUS ruling. So we've been talking about all these SCOTUS right. rulings. This is a district ruling, a federal district ruling, correct? That's right. Yeah. Preliminary injunction. Okay. This this will prevent the Biden administration from doing these things until the appeal or yeah. however long, right. two, three years, this this case takes in, in federal court. And and so the likely next step, if the Biden administration appeals, it would go to SCOTUS Supreme Court. 
it's got to go to the, the federal circuit court of appeals first. Okay. And then, it, and then depending on how they rule, either side could appeal to the Supreme court. And then there's a question of whether or not the Supreme court will get involved. Typically what happens is if the, if the appellate court, um, upholds the injunction, the Supreme court won't touch it. They typically won't even review it because they don't have yeah, to review it. it. So yeah. that will be, that will be interesting to see, you know, sort of procedurally how that happens. But if it, you know, if it goes the other way, if the appellate court denies the injunction, it's also hard for the Supreme Court to get involved. So the appellate court decision will be critical, I think. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, I got a couple minutes left here, and Steve, I want to start with you here. Um, if you can just in a couple minutes, um, kind of give me your your most positive take on what happened in June, and maybe maybe even uh, some a negative aspect or or a, um, something that we should know about maybe that wasn't in our didn't rule in our favor that that might hurt us down the road. Well, the positive aspects are that we have justices that are slowly wiping away or affecting some of the injury that's been imposed upon us by previous court rulings. Uh, and I, I don't need to go through each one of these because we did, but every one of these has some of that in it, uh, with the exception maybe of the redistricting case. Um, the others have something in it that says previous um, previous injury, like the de minimis standard for accommodation. If you may remember that Ron Paul had a policy that he voted against spending bills, but if they passed, he tried to get as much to to his district as he could. Yeah. Well, if if we're in an environment where the government is going to micromanage employers, then thankfully we have a Supreme Court that says you're going to micromanage them at least at this level. You're going to have you got the employer before he can refuse an accommodation for a guy who wants to work on Sunday. He has to show undue hardship. Each one of these has a small piece of positivity in them. I think those the, the, uh, those are great takeaways. Um, shall I go back to June of 22 and and talk about De Dobbs versus the uh, uh, Jackson Women's Health? Um, I'm litigating a case in Nashville right now for some abortion or some pro-life anti-abortion uh, folks who are being charged under the FACE Act. Um, I can't say much about that other than to say, Oh, man, are we grateful for um, the Supreme Court's ruling that came out in the last two Junes? Wow. Thank you. Davis, last comments. Yeah, I would just say this. It's encouraging that we have justices that are at least working towards original intent. They're working back towards the Constitution uh, rather than the activist judges that are using, you know, ideology right. over over the law. So I think that's encouraging. And I would just say, you know, there are justices like Gorsuch that are willing to push back on the federal bureaucracy and on the executive branch. And, and that's encouraging to me moving forward into the future so it's going to be interesting to see what happens how it holds true but i do think it is encouraging that you have justices that are at least looking at the constitutional structure and pushing back into that thank you gentlemen thanks for coming on water break appreciate you guys and your your analysis um for those who have not joined the club yet we'd love to see you join the club you get a uh, hundred dollar discount off to the fight laugh feast conference uh coming in october so you're you're losing money if you join join the club and we'll see you in October at the Ark Encounter um, until next time uh, we're this is probably the only show that's going to be dropping this week here for for cross politic and water break uh, but we'll be back in the studio or at least Knox and Knox and Toby will on Monday uh, so until next week go fight laugh and feast this is the water break with Waterboy. it is the duty of the free man to resist tyranny at every turn Every man will either watch his freedom stripped away or take action to protect what he loves. Introducing the A3, the newest revolutionary body armor from Armored Republic. The A3 is the new standard for lightweight multi-hit body armor. A3 plates are incredibly light at 4.6 pounds. The patented design captures fragmentation while remaining multi-hit capable. The A3 will stop up to M80 ball, yet comes in at only 0.7 inches thick. The A3 is the thinnest NIJ.06 compliant or certified composite standalone plate that includes the drop test. The A3 is the first of its kind, patent pending, that combines an alloy strike face with polyethylene backing, revolutionizing body armor technology by providing strength and durability while remaining sleek and maneuverable. The A3 is the new standard in lightweight body armor. The fight against tyranny just got stronger.